Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Like a lot of other people, I saw Wonder Woman earlier this month. Saw it on the opening weekend. I loved it. Uh, I am a big comic book fan. I used to write for a comic book website. And, man, easily the best DC Comics movie since The Dark Knight. Maybe the best DC Comics movie since Superman 2. Really good. Uh, If you are into superheroes and explosions and all that, go see it. And it's very easy to be cynical about superhero movies nowadays. It's easy to see them as just empty crowd-pleasers churned out by large corporations designed to appeal to the lowest common denominator and get butts in seats. It's easy to do that, but I also think it's wrong, because Wonder Woman's kind of weird in a good way. Uh, and that sort of oddness is woven into her and never really goes away. And it's been there from the very, very beginning. And it has a lot to do with who created her. Wonder Woman is a product of a guy who had some unusual ideas about human beings, sexuality, the nature of truth and gender and all that. He was a guy called William Moulton Marston. And along with his two partners, Elizabeth Holloway Marston and Olive Byrne, they would probably make utterly fascinating dinner party companions. And they did a lot more than just create one of the biggest pop culture figures of the 20th century. William Moulton Marston did not begin his career as a comic book writer. No, he was born in Massachusetts in 1893, and he was the type of person from Massachusetts who would grow up and attend Harvard, where he got degrees in both psychology and law. He made a go at having a legal career, but it didn't really work out all that well, and he was somewhat more successful as a psychologist. Meanwhile, Marston's wife, Elizabeth Holloway, was also an achieving academic. She studied law and psychology, and in 1918, she was one of only three women to graduate from Boston University. And later on, these two married and became this kind of legal psychology power couple. And they were responsible for something that was kind of a fixture of both the legal world and the psychological world for a long time. A thing that's not really in use anymore, but if you've watched any retro cop shows, you have seen the big early achievement of the Marstons, the lie detector. Uh, during World War I, the Marstons invented a machine that measured blood pressure, which they claimed strongly correlated with uttering untruths. And during World War I, William used this machine to interview German POWs. There were a few versions of the lie detector out there prior to the Marston type, but it is the Marston type that became really well known, and William Moulton Marston devoted a lot of his time and career to promoting the lie detector and to styling himself as the father of the polygraph. Now, he was a little bit huckstery about it. There is more than a whiff of snake oilness about this guy. Uh, he claimed to be the only one who actually knew how to operate it. He said he was the only one with the requisite skills to make it work and accurate and all that. And he also did a bunch of lie detector-themed ads for Gillette razors, saying that people took polygraph tests and, with the polygraph on them, truthfully stated how much better Gillette razors were. 
So yeah, William and Elizabeth are making the polygraph, but they're not just doing it for the good of mankind. They're also cashing in here. Uh, I also feel like it's my due diligence to say that polygraph data is not actually admissible in court anymore. And the consensus seems to be that lie detectors don't really work. A lie detector measures how well you fool or don't fool a lie detector. And anything you say, why all those sensors and wires and whatnot are hooked up to you, it does not matter in any kind of real legal sense. However, if Wonder Woman were to tie you up with her magic lasso and make you testify in front of a court of law, I suspect that would be totally okay. That would be 100% admissible and follow all rules of evidence in the United States and literally every other country. But back to the Marstons. They also ended up having a third person in their relationship. They end up hooking up with a former student of Marston's, Olive Byrne. Uh, we don't know what the relationship was between Elizabeth Holloway Marston and Olive Byrne. We don't know if they had a sexual relationship or not, but I suspect so. I think so. They at least definitely saw each other as family. And what ended up happening is that Olive moved in and... William Moulton Marston had kids with his wife, also with Olive, and William and Elizabeth ended up adopting Olive's children so that they could all be legally parented. They were not public about the nature of this triangular relationship of theirs, and in public they claimed that Olive was Elizabeth's widowed sister. But yeah, Wonder Woman's parents had a unconventional relationship, and I think it's totally fair to say that that unconventional approach to sexuality and relationships is definitely reflected in their later comics creation. Also, as a psychologist, Marston was an early advocate and ally of alternative sexualities. In 1928, he wrote a book with the amazing and sort of strange title, Emotions of Normal People, and defended what was back then called abnormal sexuality. Marston was totally fine with homosexuality, sadomasochism, fetishism, all fine and dandy according to him. And in 1929, Marston continued his streak of being a well-known huckstery pop psychologist by moving out to California with Elizabeth and Olive to become a consulting psychologist by Universal Studios. At the time, it was transitioning from silent movies to sound. And during the 1930s, Marston worked for probably one of the single most consequential studios of early Hollywood. I mean, Universal. They made Frankenstein. They made Dracula. And Marston was working for them during that really formative era, which is amazing. But the 1930s wear on. He continues to work for Universal, advocates for the lie detector, writes about psychology. And at the end of that decade, at the end of the 1930s, one of the most formative American pop culture events hits. Action Comics number one. Maybe the single most important pop culture event in American history. And you've probably seen the cover of Action Comics number one. There's a man, a man you recognize, clad in a form-fitting blue suit. Around his waist are a pair of red strongman's trunks, and a red cape flutters behind him. He hoists a car an entire car above his head, and he is crushing the front of it on a rock. People flee in terror and amazement, and in 1938, Superman was an instant hit. He was flying off the newsstands and his comic books into the hands of children everywhere, and also other older people. 
Other similar figures soon followed. Batman and Captain Marvel, now known as Shazam, they flew onto the scene only a year later in 1939. And in just two years, superheroes are everywhere. And William Moulton Marston was apparently a reader. He saw comics as an interesting emerging medium. And in 1940, he gave an interview with Family Circle magazine, an interview given by his partner, Olive Byrne. By the way, Olive Byrne, her job was writing advice for housewives for Family Circle, which I find extraordinarily amusing. I think it's great that this woman who is in this really non-standard relationship with her former professor and his wife and is living with them and passing herself off as the widowed sister and all that is writing housewife advice for one of those magazines that you get at supermarket checkouts. And I wonder what the readers of Family Circle would have thought had they known the truth. But anyway, in this 1940 interview, which he does with his partner, uh, William Moulton Marston talks about the great educational potential of comics. He also talks about some of the problems he has with comics. And this becomes one of the most consequential events of Marston's life because it brought him to the attention of Max Gaines, a comics publisher who oversaw the media company that would later become DC Comics. Marston, who had been reading comics and thought they were interesting, now had an opportunity to create them. Now, when sketching out his idea for a superhero, Marston was specifically reacting to the other heroes who were already out there. Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, people who solved problems by punching the problems. Marston wanted a superhero who would inspire people, who would fill people with, you know, love and all that. And it was his wife, Elizabeth, who insisted that hero be a woman. And this is what Marston had to say about creating a female character. And I think this following quote sums up a lot of what is good and kind of, you know, less than modern about Marston's thinking. He says, quote, Not even girls want to be girls so long as our feminine archetype lacks force, strength, power. Not wanting to be girls, they don't want to be tender, submissive, peace-loving, as good women are. Women's strong qualities have become despised because of their weakness. The obvious remedy is to create a feminine character with all the strength of Superman, plus all the allure of a good and beautiful woman, unquote. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, so he's definitely trying to advocate for good portrayals of women, and he wants things other than traditional masculinity to be seen and valued, which is great. But Marston also believed in a certain amount of gender essentialism, like women being tender and submissive, which is an uncomfortable statement, that's at odds with modern notion of how complex gender and sexuality can be. And before I go any further, I want to clarify something. Um, William Moulton Marston was not exactly a feminist, at least not in the way that that word is currently understood and used. There are different types of and iterations of and versions of modern feminism. Uh, I would not be able to go through all of them here. Uh, that would make for a very long podcast. And also, I don't feel qualified to do so. But the basic gist of most modern types of feminism is that they believe in gender equality and sexual equality. Uh, Marston didn't. 
He believed women were actively better than men. For instance, he believed that women were inherently more honest than men and could discern lies more easily. Man, this guy is really obsessed with, like, lies and truth-telling and all that. So when Marston is talking about his ideas about gender and sexuality, let's not pretend that he is an early version of modern progressive notions. No, he's an early 20th century version of what was progressive back then. Um... If somebody like me were to sit down and have a drink with him and start talking about gender inequality and all that, we would probably have a good deal to argue about. It could get interesting and uncomfortable. But anyway, his ideas about female superiority made their way into Wonder Woman's origin story. Marston imagined his superhero as coming from a utopia called Paradise Island, which is now also called Themyscira in a lot of the comics and the movie and all that. And he imagined it as a land populated exclusively by the Greek Amazons. Wonder Woman herself was sculpted from clay by Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons, who then breathed life into her. For Marston, the femaleness of Paradise Island very much played into its utopianness. And also, the absence of men from Wonder Woman's origin story played into her goodness. It made her kind of pure. And Marston wasn't the first writer to imagine a woman-only land as a kind of utopia, uh, there was some precedent for this. In 1909, Charlotte Perkins Gilman wrote a magazine serial called Her Land, later published as a novel, about an isolated woman-only country where the residents reproduced by parthenogenesis and operated without the outside world's burdensome notions of sex and gender. Later on, in that serial and novel, they make contact with the outside world and are able to improve the outside world with their utopian notions that have been cultured in that woman-only space. And that also happens in a lot of early Wonder Woman comics. A lot of detention in early Wonder Woman comics comes from the interplay between Wonder Woman's native utopia, or comparative utopia, and the outside world, which is referred to as man's world, and is decidedly less idyllic than the paradisical world of Themyscira, because this is the 1940s after all, and World War II is happening. Wonder Woman, she chooses to leave her utopia. She chooses to leave her land that is without war and strife, and she brings her values of love and tolerance and all that to the outside world, which needs them. And then there's also all the sexy stuff. So, if you've ever thought that Wonder Woman kind of looked like a pinup girl, that's because that was totally intentional. Her look was based on a combination of Elizabeth Holloway Marston and Olive Byrne. Uh, her famous bracers, for example, were based on bracelets that Olive frequently wore. But when Marston was collaborating with artists, they also used pinup paintings as inspiration, specifically those of Alberto Vargas, the famous Peruvian pinup painter. So... Yeah, that's all in there, and one of the criticisms you can make of Marston is that he's a straight guy who's looking at, like, all this proto-feministy stuff and kind of creeping on it just a little. It's a little weird. It's okay to think it's weird. I think it's weird. And there's also lots of bondage. There's lots of getting tied up and getting chained up and all that good stuff. If you read early Wonder Woman stories, you'll notice a common trope. Wonder Woman gets tied up a lot. She gets chained up a lot. And then she draws upon her strength to bust through the chains or the ropes or whatever is binding her and frees herself and everything's great. 
And there are a few things going on here. Uh, chains were a common image employed by suffragettes prior to Wonder Woman's creation. So this is definitely bondage and domination imagery, but it's not just bondage and domination imagery. Suffragettes did draw on, or exploit or appropriate, uh, images of slavery when they were talking about the plight of women in the United States and the UK and other places. And in one dramatic instance, British suffragettes chained themselves to 10 Downing Street as a form of protest. And images of women freeing themselves from chains was very common in early 20th century suffragette artwork. So Marston is drawing on that. And it's a sex thing. Marston was fascinated by power play, and I can't speak to what the Marston trio got up to in the privacy of their own home, but I will bet you anything that it was exciting. So if you ever go back and read those old comics and you find yourself snickering at all the stuff that looks kind of pinopy or BDSM-y, it's all intentional. It's not like a bunch of naive creators back in the 1940s accidentally created a sexy thing. They were doing it 100% on purpose. And one more thing. I don't really have a good place to put this, but it's something I love about the early days of Wonder Woman. Um, one of Wonder Woman's early villains was based on a Harvard professor that Marston really hated. Uh, there was this guy that he had to work under called Hugo Munsterberg. He was a German psychologist, and he opposed women's suffrage something fierce. This guy did not like women. So Marston put him in the comic, and he made his old boss... Dr. Munsterberg, into the cackling, bug-eyed, evil Dr. Psycho. That's awesome. I love the idea of a creator getting back on a horrible boss by turning them into a goofy supervillain who gets his ass kicked by a symbol of all the things that he was actively against. That's just wonderful. William Moulton Marston died in 1947, just six years after creating Wonder Woman. He was only 52. Both of his partners outlived him by several years. Elizabeth Holloway Marston and Olive Byrne stayed together for the next 43 years, raising the four children that the three of them had all produced. Olive lived until the 1980s. Elizabeth lived until the 1990s, dying shortly after she turned 100. After Marston, other writers began to write Wonder Woman's adventures, and they lost a little something. Uh, she became less about radical notions of female power and more of a conventional superhero. She often pined over her love interest, Steve Trevor, and fretted about love and emotions and all of that. And when DC later combined their popular characters into the Justice League of America, Wonder Woman was there. She was a founding member of the JLA, but as a secretary. But that little spark that was in Wonder Woman, that bit of like, that eccentricity, that alternativeness that was woven into Wonder Woman never really went away. In the 1960s, in the comic books, Wonder Woman lost her powers and she stopped wearing her costume. And it didn't work. When she was just turned into this sort of normal gal about town trying to have it all, she wasn't Wonder Woman anymore. Wonder Woman needs to be kind of out there. And... Later on, at the end of the 60s, early 1970s, she gets her costume back, she gets her powers back, and she appeared on the second cover of Ms. Magazine with very big, bold type that said, Wonder Woman for President. And in that moment, Gloria Steinem 
made her an icon again. And she still is. She has a movie out. It's doing great. It is great. It is the top-grossing movie ever by a female director, which is very cool because there aren't enough female directors out there. And the thing that I really love about Wonder Woman and her origin story and knowing about the people who made her is looking at something that is big and popular and published by a giant corporation, but still seeing that its DNA is really weird. It was still made by a creator who had non-standard notions about how the world is. Somebody who also put their ideas into practice in their lifestyle with how they arranged their relationships and had kids and all that. And I love the idea that comic books, despite being the source material for big crowd-pleasing blockbusters, are made by weirdos and nerds and perverts, like one of my favorite comic book writers of all time, Grant Morrison. The guy is deeply strange. He probably thinks he's a wizard, and that's great. I want the artsy, strange, weird people to be making our icons, our myths, and our media. I want the people who think weird and do weird and live weird to make our pop culture and to surprise us. And with Wonder Woman, that is definitely the case. This podcast is 100% listener-supported. If you like the podcast, support it. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com and do that thing. And thank you to all of you who support the show every month. We are on iTunes. Give us ratings and reviews. That helps people find the show. Give us five stars and kind words. That would be excellent of you. I'm on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, and on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.